Hello. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Ananya. She uh, shares with us about her training as a PhD chemist and work in the biotech field and how she felt something essential was missing in her life. She quit her job, traveled around the world, and eventually discovered her spiritual path, which includes Tantra and sacred sexuality. And she is now working as an integrated sexuality coach, leading workshops and groups and retreats. She lived for four years on an island in Thailand in which she focused on sacred sexuality, and she shares about that. And then we discuss some of the scandals which have rocked spiritual communities, including in the Buddhist world and other traditions, as well as in her own community that she was a part of. So we talk about um, what genuine consent and respect and ethics could look like in this context of a sex-positive spiritual community. She also shares with us some practical tips and practices, including the eight keys to beginning a practice of sacred sexuality. And I'm really excited about this conversation. We cover a lot of ground, and um, I think we raised some really important questions together, and it's, it was really refreshing to get to talk to her and hear her insights and thoughts about a lot of different topics related to all this. So please enjoy. Welcome to A State of Mind, and I'm here today with Dr. Ananya, am I saying that right? Yes. <laughs> Dr. Ananya Harvey. We met at a meditation retreat, actually, with a teacher called Dr. Nita. And i um, curious to hear more about you and what you've been up to since then. Do you want to say a few words about yourself? Sure. Thanks, Julian. Um, so I am an inter- integrated sexuality and relationship coach. And I mostly work with men and couples uh, around sacred sexuality, um, emotional intelligence, conscious communication, all of that awesome stuff. Um, and so I've been really, really focusing on my business since we were on retreat, uh, mm. since we last spoke. So integrated sexuality coach, is that what you said? Yes. So is it, it's coaching with individuals and couples? And yes, that's right. Similar to therapy, perhaps, or... Well, I'm not a licensed therapist. Uh, you know, coaching is a totally different uh, domain, um, but it is, it can be similar. It can be different. My work is very much somatic based. Mm. Um, so I work with the body. I work with the subconscious. And it's, so it's not just like talk therapy. It's not giving advice. Um, it's not telling people what to do. It's empowering people to uh, find their own answers, find their own truth. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> and where did where did you get uh, training for that? Is it something you've created yourself, or? Yeah, that's a really good question. So it kind of came about organically. Um, I left my career as an academic chemist. I was a, a laboratory scientist, a research chemist for oh, about yeah. for about ten years. Yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> yes. So that's where the doctor comes from. Exactly. Yeah. So I did my PhD and my postdoc, worked in biotech for a year, and then I left. Um, wow. 
What was that like working in biotech? It was both fascinating and a little bit um, disappointing, I would say. Um, You know, I really admire human ingenuity and what, you know, scientists like myself have been able to create and figure out uh, about the natural world. Um, And I also saw the great, great pressures that the companies were under to try to make a product to try to make enough money to keep going and, you know, support mm. their employees. So that and would I be also, a downside to it is the economic pressure. and Right. Because then there's like the politic, politicization of the whole, you know, industry. Mm. Yeah. I got to watch a, a drug product be carried through the FDA uh, approval process. So I got to watch that whole circus play out. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, I work in the mental health field as a therapist and I see people on, um, what are called drug cocktails where they're taking, um, you know, it could be five, six, seven, eight, even more medications. And one medication is being prescribed partly for the side effects of another. And it builds this kind of pyramid on top of each other. (laughs) And, um, I, I see that it, it helps people different medications for sure with especially people with severe mental health issues, but there's definitely like a lot of questions in my mind about are we as a society doing this in the best ways? Are we just throwing pills at people? Um, Like what are the long-term effects? A lot of these things haven't been studied for their long-term effects. Like the antidepressants were never really studied. They had like six week trial periods um, from what I've learned about them. So it's interesting to hear from someone who was on the other side of the the research of creating a new drug, right? So Right. Yeah. And in, in the field I'm in now as a sexuality coach, I rarely meet anyone who's been like in the trenches as a scientist or anyone in spirituality. You know, there's a lot of, I think, rumors and um, conspiracy theories about scientists. And, <laughs> uh, you know, but for me, I got into science from this sense of real wonder at, at the natural world and how we, could I figure out how everything works and how things fit together. And yeah. Um, there's this real like awe and hard work ethic that scientists have. Um, and it's really fascinating and complex to, and highly technical to, to do what we do. Um, it's a really beautiful discipline, I think. And and that gets lost a lot of the time, unfortunately. The discipline part, the hard work, the, um, no, just the, yeah, how much it takes to understand this field, the hard work, and the sense that we're often motivated by this sense of awe and like, oh my gosh, and oh, curiosity, right? right? right. It's quite... Um, that initial anyway. spark that got you started. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, right. you know, there's this true desire to help and to heal also, you know, got into this to try to help people. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. And I'm sure that's true for most of the people, especially the actual scientists doing the research. Yeah. I mean, when you sit down and try and figure out how molecules interact and it's just fascinating and it's fun. It's like this huge puzzle of putting things together and then looking at how do they interact on a, in a biological system is a whole other puzzle to figure out. Um, yeah, no, it's fascinating. I want to hear more about your work as a sexuality coach now, but before we go there, I just want to, <laughs> I just want to, cause I didn't realize you were a scientist. It, like you're saying, it's fascinating to me to think about how such a small molecule can have such a massive impact. Um, and taking such a small amount of a substance could totally change your conscious experience. I think 
I think it's amazing. We kind of take it for granted almost, but it's when you think about it, it's extraordinary. It is really extraordinary. But, you know, when you think about it in terms of the more holistic or spiritual disciplines, the things that we're doing there are also very subtle shifts in focus or energy. And yet they have very big effects on us as well. Well, that's a good connection to make. Yeah. Doing a particular meditation practice would have different effects. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things I want to talk about in a future podcast episode is how there are so many different kinds of med- meditation and that they would have different effects on people. They do have different effects. And, and that often gets lost when people talk about meditation as just one thing. And there's really a lot of different practices and techniques you know, that that word gets used for. And uh, it'd be cool to see. I think in the future, we eventually will see more research done on specific types of meditation for different types of people, maybe. I sure hope so. I mean, this is a really big topic in my coaching work when I help my clients start a meditation practice because there are very different ways to approach it. You know, there can be the very strict and ascetic way of, of like stopping your thoughts or only focusing, like narrowing your focus ever more. And then there can be more of a broad, holistic, all encompassing, like your whole field of awareness type of meditation where you allow yourself to be as you are and you allow your thoughts and emotions without trying to cut yourself off in any way. And, you know, I think different focuses are useful at different times. Um, But what I see most people trying to practice is uh, stopping their thoughts from this very constricted way of like beating themselves up even more. And I find that very counterproductive. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It's well, that's this whole paradox of like the more you try to stop your thoughts, the more you end up thinking or getting lost in them. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. At least for a lot of people. Um, Well, cool. So you were working as a scientist. How did you transition to where you're at now? What was that journey like? Yeah, that was definitely the journey of a lifetime. Um, I never thought that I would end up where I am now. Um, It was. It was a lot of different things. Um, One thing was I just finally realized I saw the rest of my life stretching in front of my eyes and I realized I was miserable and there was something more that I had to give. And somehow standing in lab, you know, pipetting radioactive stuff all day was not really living up to my full potential. Mm. Um, And I was lucky because I had a supportive partner. I had some resources. So I decided to leave. We decided to go traveling for a year. And in that process, I ended up living at a yoga school where um, I sort of all of the sudden, this connection between my body and my mind came back online because I had been living only in my head, Mm. uh, really in human mind realm delusion, just thinking I could figure everything out with my mind and thinking of the body as a distraction as weaker as less than all my emotions as a distraction. Uh, and oh, that's so interesting to hear. Like I can just imagine that as a scientist, like working very hard with a lot of discipline, but you're in your thinking mind all the time. And you're, it's kind of ironic if you're doing biomedical research, which is all about the body and helping people, but you're, our culture yeah. does this too. I mean, what you're talking about is, is our culture, right? We tend to, we tend to value and reward people who are very good working cognitively. Exactly. Um, And I was also very strict with myself. I have that tendency. But the thing that I was also trying to do was I was trying to make it as a woman in a man's world. Mm. Uh, And I had, I internalized the idea 
Yeah, that um, anything having to do with a woman was weak or less than, and I needed to show up completely stripped of my femininity in order for my work as a scientist to be respected. So that's what I tried to do. Wow. Um, and ultimately my body and my mind, something deeper within me, like my source, my spirit just rebelled. And so you could call it like, um, you know, maybe I had a little bit of a burnout, but I was just like, I'm not doing this anymore. And so I, I, I left. Yeah. You reached a point where you said no more. Yes. Was that um, very difficult? Did you struggle with that a long time or was it just like a light got flipped on and you said goodbye? No, it was a long process. I definitely had a lot of shame because it was like, well, why didn't I figure this out when I was still doing my PhD? You know, I mean, at that point... So you spent years and years of your life working towards this thing and then you're there and then I can can only imagine... I I had spent 10 years training to be a chemist and I was working as a chemist. And then I said, are you going to walk away from all of that hard work? Because it was grueling, really, really horrible work to get my PhD. And so it took me a long time to decide to actually do it. Hmm. Like like six months, like a year? No, I would say probably a couple years. A couple years, wow. Yeah. And are you, was there fear that you're going to lose your training that you had as a PhD student and as a chemist? I just didn't, that was all I knew how to do. I have no other, I had no other craft or skill except standing in lab and mixing chemicals together to make reactions. Okay. And presenting my work at conferences. Mm. And I was like, I don't know how this is going to translate. You know, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to start over completely. So that was really scary. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine. So you, then you decide to travel to Thailand after, after quitting basically. Yes. So we decided to just kind of travel around the world for a little while while I kind of felt into what I wanted to do. And specifically what I said I was doing on the trip was saying yes to all the things that scared me. Wow. That's a powerful practice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> End up eating weird food. and <laughs> <laughs> I did eat an insect, yes. <laughs> <laughs> But mostly for me, I'd never had a spiritual practice. Um, I'd never been very open to any sort of inner work, any sort of inner engineering, I like to call it. Um, Yeah, thanks. Um, And so I decided to say yes to meditation retreats. And, you know, I tried Zen, I tried Kundalini, I tried Tantra. Um, I lived on a permaculture farm. I went and did a month of... um, what's that contact improvisation dance? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> cool. So. so you're trying out a bunch of different things and then do you find like one kind of path that you stuck with for a while then? Right. Exactly. So then I said yes to this Tantra workshop and you know, all the images I had of Tantra were of this weird sleazy gross thing that you just want to stay away from. <laughs> <laughs> um, but some friends of mine invited me to this on an island in Thailand. And um, I said, okay, well, if, I, if I'm having a big reaction to that, then probably I need to go toward it instead of away from it. Hmm. Um, I imagine being on an island in Thailand would add to the fear because you're kind of isolated out there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, that's a good, that's an interesting point. But no, we had been traveling to so many strange places, so it didn't. Okay, that yeah. wasn't part of it. Yeah. 
Was there ever a time of following your or going towards something that you were afraid of that ended up being a bad experience or negative or something you regretted? Um, no, actually, I don't regret saying yes to any of those experiences. Okay. Yep. I, I mean, mean there's some certain of them... fear that, that we have that's intelligent fear. But that's, I mean, that's not what you're talking about, right? Right. So this is a very good point because this is also something that I've, I talk to my clients about is how can you discern, you know, whether uh, you're afraid of something because it's the voice of your conditioning or whether it's the true voice of your true knowing and you need to pay attention mm-hmm. to it. Right. Um, and the thing is that for me, I knew because I had had these voices in my head my whole life that were extremely critical and just always telling me, not to do something. And so I was like, well, I'm just going to not pay attention to those voices for a little while and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> you end up on a island <laughs> off the coast of Thailand in some tantric community. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <So what are you? laughs> okay. Maybe some people are already thinking I should have listened to that voice in my head. <laughs> What was that? What was that like? First of all, what kind of tantric community? Like, I, I'm a, I've been a Buddhist practitioner for a long time, and Buddhist tantra is, I think, a little bit different than what you're talking about. Are you? Right. Exactly. So I didn't know anything about spirituality. I'd never had a guru. I didn't want a guru. I didn't really know anything. Which way was up, down, or whatever. Um. So it took me a few years to figure out what exactly it was. Um. It was more based on Kashmir Shaivism, so mm-hmm. Indian tantra. Uh, also combined with Hatha yoga and then some modern sexual healing, uh, neo-tantric practices around relating, communicating, shadow work, that sort of thing. Oh, well. So it sounds like uh, elements of connected with the ancient lineage of Kashmir Shaivism, but then modern practices as well. Exactly. It was a big mix of a bunch of different things. And so it was very confusing to sort out because the school just said officially, no, this is authentic Tantra. And, um, but I'm a scientist and I asked a bunch of questions and it was pretty clear <laughs> that something else was going on. Yeah. Huh. And, and how long were you there for? So I ended up staying there for four years. Wow. That's a long time. <laughs> yeah. Were you working there or like doing the workshops or retreats or what was it like? Um, so that's a really good question. Um, I was working odd jobs here and there, but that wasn't the focus of my life. So a bunch of things happened and I ended up getting divorced and losing my house and a place to live um, in the States. Um, but I did have some savings. And so I decided I'm going to stay in Thailand and go through this process that's happening in my body and let it unfold. Mm. Um, so my focus there was Hatha yoga meditation, um, studying Kashmir Shaivism and, you know, sexual healing practices. Um, so really I was full-time focused on spiritual practice, you could say. Well, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was incredible because before I went to, I went there, I really wasn't able to meditate. Like it just wasn't accessible to me because I was so in my head and my body was so uncomfortable and so disconnected. I would just pop out all the time. Mm. But after I went to this school and started doing like this very, this unusual form of Hatha yoga where it's, you hold the poses a long time and meditate in them. 
then suddenly I was able to meditate because it was like using my body more. So the, yeah, getting more embodied was a big part of your meditation path, it sounds like. Yes, exactly. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's an interesting point because it's certainly possible to meditate and stay in the more what I call the cognitive or conceptual mind and follow the thoughts or even follow your breath kind of from your thinking mind place, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Rather than being the breath, you're like looking at the breath as if yeah. you're in your head watching the breath. And I think that is a phase we can go through, but it's not really. I think if you stick with meditation and get deeper in it, then you become more and more embodied and you drop out of that head focus. Right. I mean, there's different techniques and ways to approach it, but I think it's worth worth saying that. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like such a newbie at spiritual practice, even though I've been at it for a few years, I kind of feel like I'm just beginning. So, you know, I may not have the deepest or most correct understandings, but for me, I really found the regular meditation that I was exposed to, the Buddhist meditation in California, to be very ascetic and to just really ignore what my body needed to ignore mm. anything. It was just sit and, and that was just completely inaccessible to me. I, I needed to be in flow. I needed to be like opening and in my body and able to move. Mm. And, and I thought that there was just something wrong with me. Um, but it turns out there are, you know, that's not the only style of meditation. It's not just ascetic. There are these other practices. Thank you. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cool. So you're doing Hatha yoga and more meditative way. Like what are the other kind of, I don't know, like what would a typical day look like for you on the island there? I'm just trying to picture it. Right. So normally, because it's hot there, so we would have class in the morning and class would be like four hours. So there would be a lecture, there would be a discussion, and then a long practice, you know, two or three hours of actual practice. Um, you know, then we would have time off in the afternoon and then in the evenings there would be like meditation or a ritual or, um, you know, a satsang. There was always something, um, like that felt healthy to do. Mm. Um, so it wasn't like a strict monastic (laughs) sort of (laughs) schedule. It was also very enlivening and, and being in the world. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And uh, people would be coming and going like for different uh, retreats or different programs? or. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. There were regularly, you know, week-long or 10-day silent meditation retreats, or you could do week-long workshops on all sorts of different topics. Mm. Um, so it was really up to you. The sky was the limit how much you wanted to practice versus how much you wanted to study. You know, and then there was like Kashmir Shaivism study group and I mean, it was really a, a, um, a special place to be in the world, I would say. Yeah, it sounds really unusual. Is it mostly uh, Westerners, so to speak, or is there Thai people or Indian people? No, it's, it's almost completely Westerners. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and the reason I stayed was because I was in a workshop and doing some eye gazing. And for me, eye gazing was a really, really big deal. Um, I didn't like doing it. And especially here, I was supposed to eye gaze with a bunch of men who I didn't know. And I was terrified because I'd been taught in my experience my whole life was that looking men in the eye, I would just get chased or harassed. And I tried not to do that or I would give the wrong message. And so to sit through an entire ritual of an hour eye gazing with all these different men, it was terrifying to me. 
But it was my first week at the school and I did that process. And at the end of it, something happened, like something I can't explain, where all of a sudden I was catapulted into this state of like flow and energy and aliveness. It was like something was totally unleashed within me that, and it was like, I've been waiting for you your whole life. (laughs) And I suddenly realized I had been suppressing my feminine so intensively and trying so hard to be a man and only in the rational, only in my head, only in the objective realm and pushing Mm. away and denigrating anything else. And it had been exhausting me. Like I had all these strange ailments in my body, like, um, well, I guess it's not so strange, but constant brain fog in the afternoon and just constantly hungry and just all these low level chronic Mm. things. I was exhausted. And when this shift happened during the ritual, it was like I had this energy available to me that I'd never known before. Mm. And I didn't have to try so hard. I mean I, I, I mean, I was a total newbie to spiritual practice. I didn't even have any words for this. I didn't know what was going on. I just knew something profound was happening to my body. Um, and so I wanted to stay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. And yeah, I'm curious. I'm. Would you describe this as like a sex positive community? Like you mentioned, it's not monastic. It's not ascetic. Like I'm curious. Now you're working as a sexuality coach. Like where does that piece come in? Right. So, <laughs> yes. I mean, this this school was a, a tantric school, and one of the main practices was quote unquote tantric sex. You know, and that means so many different things in the world. Um, so that was definitely a big focus of the teachings and the practice there. And, and so going through that process and learning to be a teacher of that was my first step into the realm toward, toward being a sexuality coach. Right. So this was a long answer to your question. How did, what is my training? This was the first part of it, right. Spending four years totally embodying uh, this sexual healing work, this, this spiritual sexual practice uh, and then becoming a teacher of it. Wow, yeah. Well, so what, what is tantric sex in this school? I guess <laughs> <laughs> maybe there's different answers to that question. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, as I tend, I'm still an academic at heart. So, you know, I, I've been asking a lot of questions and um, through the years, like what actually is tantric sex? Um, and there's a lot of different answers. I, I actually run a classical tantric book club where we study uh what is classical what is tantric sex in the classical literature Mm. you know and and how where are women's voices in those in those practices um but the way that it was considered at this school it's its own thing um they they kind of put it together from various angles and basically it's just um you know making love with a certain kind of awareness awareness of moving energy and with the focus on union with the divine union with consciousness, uh, with Shiva as pure awareness. Um, so it's like ego death, you know, dying to your sense of individual self. Um, and that would be part of the intention you would go into it with like, that's what would make it a, a spiritual practice. Well, I mean, there's also very specific ways of, of, making love that make it a spiritual practice in their system. But the intention is a big one. 
another really, really big part of that practice was um, retention on the part of the man. So ejaculation control, mm. um, you know, and, and also on the part of the woman learning about her body in ways, her pleasure and her orgasm and learning to move the energy up toward the higher chakras mm. together. Yeah. So that, you know, that's a sort of high level view of what they considered tantric sex. Um, yeah. Interesting. Did you see like what kind of, I don't know, what kind of effects did you see people have with this? Like would people sometimes feel more alive, more energized? Or were there also like negative effects? Like I can imagine someone could have um, a lot of issues come up or emotional issues. Yeah. So yes, that's a great question. So, you know, this is the dark side and, you know, I had a very profound experience and I'm grateful for being able to spend these years at this school, but I can't recommend that anyone else ever go there because they're, you know, they're, here it comes. (laughs) There's certainly a big dark side. Um, Mm. And I mean, some of the benefits were, I mean, for me, you know, really coming alive, really, stepping into my sexual power, healing my, my, um, I had a lot of disgust around my body, around sex. And I, I'd never been taught anything about how to really open to someone or how to feel pleasure. So there was a lot of education and healing that I got from it. Um, but the downside is that, um, yes, it can take you out of your head. It can just make you really sort of have this transcendentalist view and just be kind of floating and bypassing things that really come up. Mm. Um, So it can lead, I think, to some things like God delusion or just getting really addicted to and drunk on that energy. So if there's not a very careful container, ethical guidelines and like a ground of practice and really, really good mentorship, then working with energy in such a strong way can really lead people astray. Mm. Yeah. So the mixed experience, you're not recommending we go to the island, but you're also here, you are working as a sexuality coach. So you're getting the good out of it and trying to shut that. <laughs> yes. So it was through that process that I realized because becoming a teacher of this sort of work, I, I had to do a lot of interviews with, with different people about their sex lives. And I also started my own project interviewing men, talking about what it was like for them to develop orgasm without ejaculation. And I realized how much I love talking to people about these topics. I just really love it. It's super interesting. I, I feel like I'm a scientist again, just investigating, right? Like what our bodies can do. Cause it's remarkable to me that like, you know, making love in this way can bring so much depth and healing uh, and profoundness and even, you know, these spiritual experiences of, of, of dissolving the boundaries of your individual self. And, and yet this information was not, is not given to us typically in the world, right? Right. Why was I not taught this? Um, so, but then, you know, as time went on and I realized the shortcomings of the school, I made it a point to get other teachers. And so, you know, my coaching work comes from a very ethical, grounded, thoughtful Mm. uh, woman named Layla Martin, who gave me the methodology and the practices um, that, you know, are incredibly, incredibly effective, but they're also from a very pro-woman, pro-social justice, ethical framework, modern framework. 
Um, you know, and I've also studied classical tantric meditation and practice with people like Christopher, Christopher Wallace and Paul Muller Ortega. And so these things gave me the ground back, you know, and also gave me a much wider perspective um, on this work. But the thing is, the, the practices at the school in Thailand, for me, like those four years of embodiment of really going through that healing work on my own, like nothing can substitute for that. It, that was incredibly necessary for me to feel it in myself first before I could become a coach of it. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Huh. I'm curious about, do you want to name the, the place you went to? I mean, you don't have to, but... And what and what kind of issues were there? Were they like you mentioned, like not being ethical? Like, what is that? What do you mean exactly? Um. So I think you know if we put a name to it, that might just drive more attention and more traffic there. And you know, I'm I'm of two minds of how to do this. Okay. You know, in in the most helpful way. Um. So maybe let's just say it was a school in Thailand and <laughs> leave it at that. Okay. Um, and, you know, what was wrong was that the, I mean, this is my opinion. Right. But there was, there was not a good code of ethics. There was a lot of unexamined shadow, um, unexamined, um, sort of unexamined patriarchal teachings that ended up hurting a lot of the women there and God delusion on the part of the leaders hmm. who would um, end up having sex with women, even when the women said no. And, you know, there were finally, after years of this going on sort of under the surface um, and any time people would try to protest, you know, they use that sort of crazy wisdom technique of saying like you, it's all within you. It's all your own issues that you're projecting on us. And it's also your karma that you came to this situation and it's your responsibility to take care of yourself. And so there was no way to criticize the leadership. Um, They would just throw it back on the people that the leadership was unwilling to do any, um, internal work any yeah. self-reflection no thank you for answering that question that that makes sense i think that's true in a lot of spiritual communities where the any objection the student has the guru can always just say oh that's your own ego yes. or that's your own karma and throw it back on you and, and there's something wrong about that and i think that's coming to light more i mean in the buddhist world that there's been a number of scandals now with teachers and um yeah it's a real problem and uh i think we're trying to figure it out but one of the effects of this has been to just make people increasingly skeptical of, of teachers or quote unquote gurus in general. And so I think there's healthy skepticism there. Um, yeah, this is a really great point. It's something I've struggled with so much over the past years. I mean, at the same time as everything was unfolding at school in Thailand, the Shambhala scandal was happening. And I was very yeah. much aware of Project Sunshine. And we kind of had our own version of Project Sunshine going on. Um, right. So Project Sunshine I, was like an investigation or a recording of abuses that had happened in the Shambhala community. Yeah. And so I saw, I kind of spearheaded an, a roughly equivalent investigation at the school that I was at and tried to bring to light and say, hey, this is going on and this is wrong and you can't say it's our ego. Oh, um, well, good for you for doing that. 
Well, were, were the abuses mostly coming? I don't know how to put this in the words exactly. Is it what you saw in this place in Thailand, mostly men being the abuser and women being abused, so to speak? Yes. Um, mostly, you know, of course there were cases also of men saying, and, and of course women could get drunk on this energy as well. And there were cases of men saying that women had, you know, really forcefully, you know, tried to get them to, to be partners to. It can, it can go both ways. I think that's important to name and acknowledge. I'm really glad that you brought that up. Yes, it absolutely can go both ways. Um, but in the end it was, you know, around 30 women that banded together to give their stories of abuse and rape to the media. And there weren't any men in those stories. Yeah. Um, but what I'm left with through all of this is the question of, you know, what makes a good teacher and how do you know when it's your ego or when it's set or when you can say, no, this will not pass. This is wrong. I won't take this abuse. Mm. And um, I don't think there's an easy answer there. I've talked to a lot of tantric Buddhist practitioners and some of them say the exact same words that the guru at the school in Thailand said to me, even though they're coming from an ethical framework and it's scary. Um, it almost made me want to walk away from spiritual practice entirely because it just feels so slippery. It is. I'm not sure what to say about it now, but in the, in the Buddhist world, Buddhist Tantra, like the emphasis on the guru relationship is so strong. I mean, it's, it's true in Indian, other forms of Indian yoga, but it's so strong that you have to, you're expected to completely surrender to that person. And so, of course, there's huge potential for abuse. And in theory, a lot of potential for growth and learning if they're a legitimate, genuine teacher. Um, Even if they're not legitimate, you can grow a lot, but it's going to hurt too. <laughs> I mean, I grew a lot. Um, We're talking about consent, basically, right? Like what makes uh, a certain act or a certain relationship or a certain situation ethically good or ethic- ethically problematic? It seems to come down to consent. A lot of people are talking about consent now. The problem is that I see, one of the problems I see is... Um, we're not always in a place to give our full consent. You know, we're complex creatures. And for example, with sexuality, if, if someone's really turned on, then they say yes in that moment and then later they regret it. I mean, that's one issue. Um, there's just, there's a lot of issues here. It's a, it seems like a complicated subject. In theory, it's simple. We have consent. Yeah, no. And that was one of the big, big issues at the school was for whatever reason, the leadership ignored that there was a power differential between the teachers and the students. And they thought that, you know, the women who consented to do the practice with the teachers were fully in their right mind and able to consent. But when it's a student teacher thing, you can't, it's not right. You have to acknowledge there's this energy of power in there that makes consent murky, if not impossible. So where, where would you stand on that issue? Would you say that that just, that kind of relationship just should not happen at all or that it is possible to have that? and be ethical? That's a really, really good question. Um, you know, I know that for me, I give my students the gift of saying, I do not sleep with my students (laughs) (laughs) Uh, because I want them to learn and not have 
whether or not they like the path or the practice mixed up in feelings of attraction or sexuality for the one who's teaching them, Hmm. you know, um, I know that I came, um, I do feel that I was able sometimes to give my consent, even when there was a power differential and I am happy that I did. Uh, so I think it really, really depends on the person Hmm. and how stable they are internally Um, but sometimes I don't, I don't think you can tell that until it's too late. Um, (laughs) 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 so I would, you know, considering all that's going on in our society right now and all of the massive healing that we're doing around with the feminine and this abuse of power, I think that right now it's just not a good time to engage in sexuality in a student teacher relationship. Not at all. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, especially if you're offering classes or, I mean, yeah, I can, yeah, it's complicated, but that would be a simple solution. Yes. Um, I mean, it's very complex. So I was reading a book in my book club recently called Love and Liberation, which is the story of a real woman in 1920s Tibet, Eastern Tibet. And she became enlightened through karma mudra, through classical tantra sexual practice. And the way that she did it was by practicing karma mudra with her guru who Mm. became her lover and, you know, the love of her life. Um, And so it was an incredibly good thing and a a valued and praiseworthy thing in her life. Uh, But it raises a lot of thorny questions for us today, I think. Very different time and place and culture. Was she ethnically Tibetan? Yes. Yeah. Well, in that culture, the guru is placed on such a pedestal that, I've never read, I never read accounts from historical Tibet criticizing the gurus because they're always the perfect enlightened ones. <laughs> um, I'm sure that there were, of course, there were abuses. I mean, there's some historical records of abuses, but in gen- generally speaking, it has this kind of hagri, what's the word, hagriophical flavor of. Ah, uh, um, yeah, hagiography or hagiography. Yeah, hagiography. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and I, I think, yeah, I have a feeling in those classical traditions, they would say that you can't question the teacher and whatever the guru is doing to you is part of your path. So it's very different from our culture today, our consent culture of today. Yeah. So maybe we can have an evolution of these ancient spiritual traditions into our cult, you know, and have modern um, recognition of power differences and ethics and, and also just like a different, a different relationship with the teachers where it's not maybe not so extreme. Yes. So what I think that needs to happen and this is why I do the work I do is, is I think we need to stop shaming ourselves around sexuality, stop making it so prurient uh, stop and start giving ourselves really good information and really good empowerment around being sexual beings, then there wouldn't be such a huge shadow that comes out at the first opportunity. Right. Yeah. No, that sounds great. I mean, unfortunately these kinds of scandals have a lot of people go the opposite way and become more puritanical about it all and more rejecting of it all. And I mean, yeah. I like that you're, you're saying that you got a lot of positive out of it and there was a shadow side. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, we know that whenever you repress something, like we said at the beginning, the more you try to stop your thoughts, the more they proliferate. If you try to cut off your sexual energy and desire, the more it's going to have a hold on you and the more you're going to criticize it in other people, but secretly really want it. And it's going to come out in abuse. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that's why my method and my coaching is all about acknowledging, accepting and integration. Mm. Nice. Um, another way to approach this would be to do these kinds of practices in a relationship, in a partnership where you feel safe and you've established trust and you've established commitment. Um, so it could, you could do these kinds of practices in a monogamous relationship. Did you see any benefit from, I don't know, lack of a better word, promiscuity? Like, I mean, is there any spiritual reason that these teachers are justifying their behavior. Huh. Also a very, very interesting question. Um, so I think that there were both spiritual reasons and egotistical sex addict reasons mm. for justifying promiscuity, if we want to call it that, or open relationship. Um, I think that there is benefits to both. Um, and there's a time and place for, for both um, going really, really deep with these practices with one consort and for exploring how your energy and your body responds to different people. Um, so, you know, even in the book, Love and Liberation with Sarah Condro, she had her main consort practice with her guru, but she also was sent to do sexual practice with a whole bunch of other llamas in the area. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to, um, you know, I think open relationships can work for some people or there's different lifestyles people can try. I don't want to shame anything. I'm just curious about, um, it seems like certain people are, you're going to be a better match for obviously than others. And, but the container of a relationship could create so much more trust and openness over time, I think. I mean, I think a lot of people have found that. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it depends on what you're working on sexually, right? I mean, there can be trust and openness and really profound depth in, in spiritual sexual practice with one person, but there can also be your same dynamics, your same patterns that you can't seem to get over that you're playing out. Right. And you're just working with the same energy from this person all the time. So if there's something particularly stuck it could be helpful, you know, to, to have the perspective, to see yourself in the mirror of a different person and their energy and Mm. right. How they relate to intimacy. And you really need to use your discernment here. And I think that's, what's often lacking in society. It's always extreme. It's like, Oh, you either have to be all, you know, open or all closed. No, I mean, (laughs) our life, it's like a dance, right? It breathes. And we need to be deeply in touch with ourselves and grounded in, you know, what is going to be the best medicine for me right now. Or if you notice yourself having always one particular tendency, you need to antidote that, right? Mm. To come back into balance on your path. Yeah. So like you're partly talking about not being stuck in your habits, the habitual way of being. Right. Yeah. Partly. Um, and sometimes there are unconscious patterns that you're going playing out with another person, and sometimes they get really, really stuck. You know. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. 
Have you found it challenging, like with clients you're working or maybe in your own life, like to find partners who want to do these practices? Like you're talking about very specific practices. And most people in their sex life don't, aren't even thinking about that right there. Right. So that was part of the wonder and the sorrow of, of spending time uh, at that school and in this particular community because, you know, sexual energy and being able to do practices and rituals like this, it is a luxury in life. It requires getting enough sleep, having enough time, having dedication to each other. Mm. And it's also a totally different framework for making love. When you start to have conscious sexuality as part of your relationship, it can actually not feel very sexy at first. It can feel awkward and weird and really uncomfortable. Mm. And so. Yes, it is hard to find someone who is ready for that and really wants that, you know. And there's all the like neo tantric practices or the stuff that I learned at my school that's, you know, more or less accessible. But then if you go into the Tibetan practices, I mean, that's incredibly culturally and specific to that lineage and that's incredibly complex that requires, you know, months or years of training to do. Right. Um, And the other thing is that, you know, using sexual energy in this way at all for the purposes of, you know, spiritual practice, that in itself can be super confronting because most of us are taught that sex is only for making children or maybe also for pleasure. Um, But engaging in this really with the intention of, no, this is something that is good and enlivening and liberating in the world. Uh, is requires quite a big journey sometimes. Yeah. Even if we aren't consciously thinking that we grow up in a culture that basically teaches us that. Exactly. But I think that's why this is so needed now, you know, to look at our sexual blind spots at our shadow to really bring this back into the light because there's just been so many centuries of abuse when we try to repress and, and shame this part of our existence. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in our culture, we've had more um, the puritanical puritanical streak um, of shaming sexuality in general. But I mean, the other flip side of abuse is like what you were talking about, like with Shambhala and with some of these other communities where there's been abuse from the leadership. Um, I mean, it seems like I really wonder how common that is in spiritual communities in general. When we look at the Catholic Church, it seems like it was really common and really tragic. And while we don't hear about that in the Buddhist monasteries as much, it's not that hard to imagine that some version of that has gone on in the past, maybe going on today, and just isn't talked about. And I hope, you know, I don't want that to be true, but I'm just being realistic with myself. Yeah, I read something. I read something saying, oh, they're starting to talk about uh, abusive llamas in the tradition. So, you know, unfortunately, it might come out there, too. Um, yes, it's very prevalent. When we look at all of the guru scandals, all of the yoga scandals of the past year, basically anyone who's tried to be a guru <laughs> involving <laughs> the body, involving non-aesthetic work, has the temptation has been too great. Um, and and it's uh, and it goes back from from the time from like the 1960s, right? Like from the from yoga coming to America, this has been a theme, and it's happened to guru after guru after guru. Here we are, 2019. That's like, it just keeps happening. Is that just human nature playing itself out? Is there such a thing as an enlightened being that can also have sex? (laughs) (laughs) 
I would say just assume no, okay? Because like, just keep yourself safe and run. If someone offers to give you spiritual awakening through sex, run. (laughs) (laughs) Such strong words. This is after four years on the island. (laughs) I've seen a lot. What was I going to say? I don't know if it's just human nature. I think that American society with our Puritan heritage and centuries of repression has an incredibly big sexual shadow. Mm. Um, And I don't know what, and I think the cultural differences and expectations of guru behavior are so different when, you know, people come here from the East. So I don't know how this would play out in, in the cultural context that it was meant to be in without the American puritanical baggage. I have hope that it could be different. I don't think this is something that has to be intrinsic to how humans behave. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think, I think it's good to have like some humor about all this and we are all human. And I was just going to say, like, I've, just, I've thought about these issues a bit and it's like, it just feels like a lack of um, ethical clarity if there was a person who was in a position of authority who is a teacher and they're being very they're being completely honest and transparent and upfront with you like that seems to me conditions where someone could give consent or not if they can receive a yes or a no without punishing you for that within the community right like so it seems possible and i imagine it's happening just i mean it's just yeah so does that make sense mm-hmm. like it's not necessarily in my mind it's not necessarily ethically wrong for for two consenting adults to have sex, obviously that would be okay. But it's the question of what that means seems like unclear. It's hard to define exactly. And then if different people have different definitions or if someone says that they want something and then later is like, I didn't want that. Does that make it ethically wrong for that, for the other partner in that? Because they had got, they had received consent. They'd asked. Yeah. I mean, I think much wiser heads than mine have been thinking about this and I don't know that I have the answer, but I do know that when there's a power differential that I think it's harder to really know your truth and fully consent. Right. Um, But I like how you're thinking. I would like to imagine a scenario in which something could be very clear and above board and it could still work somehow. Yeah. I think clarity of communication and transparency is, is key. Cause like one way in which people get hurt is if you're in a sexual relationship and someone else and your partner like quote unquote cheats on you, right? That's a common way. Mm -hmm. I'm an ethical dilemma that happens. So in an open relationship in theory that there would be communication where there's not a betrayal of expectations there. Right. I love that. And yeah, I haven't, you know, come across a teacher yet who had a Western style training in conscious communication and a depth of Eastern training in the sexual practices and was able to combine them. So that's a good point. <laughs> Perhaps I'll, I'll share a story here just for the hell of it without naming any names. But I know I was friends with uh, a person who slept with a Tibetan lava and, um, and it was consensual. I mean, they wanted it and they didn't regret it. Uh, but then Later, they asked them, like, oh, they found, out, they found out they were married and had children. Like, oh, you're married. What does your wife think about this? And their answer was, oh, I'm, you know, she doesn't know. And, and then she was like, are you going to tell her? And the, the teacher was like, no, I'm not going to tell her. That would just cause her more pain. 
And to him, it didn't seem to be a problem. But to my way of thinking and to a lot of way, people's way of thinking, that is not ethical because then you're lying. Mm-hmm. Maybe in that culture, that's the norm. I don't know. I just want to share that little story. I mean, <laughs> and it wasn't a situation of abuse per se, but it didn't, it wasn't this totally transparent, open thing either. Right. Well, I can give an example that might have some bearing on that. Um, you know, one of the reasons I was so interested in being in a community where their sexuality was accepted, celebrated and openly practiced was because one, what I had seen across the world was just sheer hypocrisy. Like there were always these religious communities uh, where sex was forbidden, but then secretly, of course, the leader would, was having sex with whoever he wanted. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's got to be the worst of all. <laughs> right. And I was like, okay, well, here's a community where they're not being hypocritical in this way. And it's all open and above board. And because the second reason is that at the end of the day, it's really incredible to be able to do this together as humans. I mean, it's one of the deepest joys of human existence to make love in this conscious way and and to help each other on the spiritual path in such an embodied, present way together. It's remarkable, you know, and and it's a precious, precious thing. And so I can understand why people would want to practice. Mm. Um, and, and I wish there was more ways that we could do it in this beautiful, innocent, um, you know, a liberating way. Yeah, absolutely. That's beautiful. That was well said. Thank you. <laughs> um, I guess it raises another question for me of, um, when we think about something like meditation practice, it's a kind of discipline. We will like, have the intention maybe to do it every day for a certain amount of time, whether we want to or not, it's often not fun. Um, and then we think about something like sex. Yeah. It's, it's about pleasure. It's about love. It's about fun. It's about connection. Um, but maybe, I mean, is there a quality of like, you're going to do this practice regardless of whether it makes you feel good or not for a certain amount of time. Like there's a certain commitment versus just doing what feels good in the moment. And then there must be a certain payoff. Like if you do these practices, are you going to, expand your experience of pleasure or is it just kind of you know does that make sense yes yes that's a really good question so yes they there was a suggested sadhana where you were to make love every day for an hour at least for example oh. a whole hour. <laughs> right even that is confronting to people like really <laughs> gosh i'm not sure i like my partner enough to do that <laughs> See, it turns our thinking on its on head. It's very deep, this practice. Um, just that is, is, con- is con- confronting, I would say, for mm-hmm. a lot of people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But part of the practice is, yes, you do expand your capacity to hold pleasure in your energy body, you could say. And the other thing that happens is part of the practice is really, um, it's, it's transfiguration. So it's the practice of, of divinization of your body and of each other you know, which is also very common to classical Tantra. And so this practice of really seeing each other as the sacred masculine, the sacred feminine, or, I mean, you can also do it as same sex or couples or variations, just but seeing the divine in each other. Right. Um, when you practice that in an embodied way every day, regularly, it does something for your relationship. Mm, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was really, you know, you can see how deep and how meaningful these practices are. And at the same time, how heartbreaking it was to understand the level of, of 
darkness that there was too. Mm. Yeah, especially when you're that immersed in a community and it's your whole life and you're that committed to it. Mm. Um, yeah, it makes it really difficult. I wouldn't say it was my whole life because okay. <laughs> I'm quite obstinate and skeptical. <laughs> well, that was a good thing then. Yes, yes. I know, so, people, I know people in the Shambhala community, for example, who maybe they wouldn't want to say it's their whole life, but it was it's a lot of their life and then they feel very betrayed. And it's a quality of, of, of being in a cult where it feels all-consuming and it becomes your friendships, it becomes your work, it becomes your everything. And so when it falls apart, it's, it's extra painful. Yes, it was extremely painful for a lot of people. Um, I count myself lucky because I kept the skeptical side of me. And even then it was very painful. But just to say, I always had one foot in another teaching somewhere, whether it was Christopher Wallace or Layla Martin or another teacher, I, I was always kind of like <laughs> having outside sources as well. Mm. And that, that kept me sane and able to discern and able to stand up and say no when I realized what was going on. Yeah, no, I'm glad to hear that. Thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I was involved with the group um, that some people have heard of called One Taste that teaches the practice of orgasmic meditation. And I had a similar quality of one foot in, one foot out. But for a lot of people, it, it was this all-consuming kind of situation. And I felt that to some degree myself, but... Um, that, if, if people like look that up on Google, there's been a lot of bad press that's come out. There's been a lot of scandals in that community. And interestingly enough, that was a community that was dominated by women. And so some of the abusive uh, situations and tactics and relationships and things that were being done were actually coming from women, which, you know, not to celebrate that exactly, but just like, to again reiterate that point that it's abuse is something that could happen regardless of your gender. Um, so. Yeah. I fully agree. I, I'm aware of one taste and of the press around it and all that happened. And yes, you know, women yeah, can be mixed, mixed experience for a lot of people. Yeah. Right. I mean, do you feel like you got a lot out of it? Um, yeah, I do feel like I got a lot out of it. Um, but what I didn't get out of it was an example of ethical leadership. Mm. And um, mm -hmm. that, that kind of negativity kind of poisons the whole thing for me, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, there is good out of it and separate the good from the bad. And, um, but, uh, just the, I think, I think where the real damage comes when we're talking about spirituality is doubt and cynicism. And it's, it's hard enough to, to have a committed spiritual practice and to try to better yourself in these ways. And then when that kind of basic trust gets betrayed, then you're like, what the fuck is the point of this? And you go into nihilism or cynicism. And that to me is something that, I struggle with that. Every, anyone alive today struggles with, right? Yes. I think it's really important because there were, you know, some of my friends had been, you know, at the school in Thailand and then also following another guru who was teaching in Brazil and India, and they both fell in, in short order. And I think what a lot of us took out of it was, you know, to stop seeking to follow anyone. I mean, I didn't go there looking to follow someone, but perhaps it happened. I was following the practices. Um, mm. but, but to stop looking outside of ourselves um, for anything or anyone to tell us the truth or the path and to really you know, trust our own inner wisdom and guidance. And I think that's a very, very beautiful reorientation. I like that. I love that. That's a great message. 
Thank you. You know, again, like I like to see life as, as it breathes. It's a cyclical thing. And so, you know, you can say you're following your own guidance and wisdom and it can be great for a while, but then it can just become your ego and you can get stuck in only doing what's comfortable. And so eventually it's like you, a teacher could be helpful to give you a little nudge, right? Mm-hmm. And then you stay with the teacher for a while and then you go back to doing it on your own. So I kind of see a path evolving and spiraling in, in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think maybe another piece of, the, of this could be if there is a leader or someone in a position of authority and they do something that's ethically wrong or they do something wrong or they hurt people, there could be a path of uh, atoning for that and forgiveness, some kind of way of uh, reconciliation that could happen because we're not, you know, we don't have to put people on a pedestal always and try to pretend they're perfect. And then when they do something wrong, say that they're the worst thing in the world. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to do that. I think that's the other shadow side of some of this stuff. Like as good as the me too movement is like there's the tendency to go to black and white thinking and make someone into a monster. Someone was a saint. Now they're a monster. And that's this like human dynamic we keep playing out. Yes. I'm so glad you spoke to that. I mean, that is part of our, I think Puritan inheritance too. It's either all good or all bad. And, um, the reason that I do the work that I do was because that's what I saw was, um, I completely, you know, uh, feel and understand and have gone through my own me too's and hear the cries of women who have been oppressed for so long. And if all that happens is we shame men and try to push them away and make them all bad. And there's no one there to catch the men. Hmm. How are they going to heal? How are we going to move forward? How are we going to have allies? Um, And, and someone, you know, I think there needs to be someone to reach out a hand and say, Hey, I know you're not a monster let's help you heal. Yeah. Yeah. And that was one good thing I I did get from one taste and this could be, maybe this is an example of something that could be abused. But one of the things that I remember being said was, do you want to be right or do you want to be in connection? Mm. And it was like, as long as you hold onto this, I'm right, you're wrong. Even if that is, is true. Like at some point you've got to, if you want to stay in relationship and connection, you have to, you have to heal and make that decision. Um, so yeah, but maybe there's some things where that's, you know, some situations where that's going to be easier than others, um, which is a whole other subject, but just the whole, the whole idea, it really ties into the whole idea of justice and our, in this country, our whole prison industrial complex, we don't have a good system for rehabilitation. We don't have a good system for healing people. We have a system based on punishment and it's not working. I don't, I don't think it's helping. I completely agree. Yep. I think you're alluding to restorative justice, that movement that, and I'm so glad that it's there. Um, The one caveat I will say is that at least in the case of the school I was at, it was very clear that the leadership, at least the main leader had some kind of something, some inability to do any introspection, to take any responsibility. Like he was unable, he would just blame other people no matter what. And uh, he, nothing could get through to him, right? So sounds like our president. <laughs> yes, very, very similar. <laughs> and so I don't know about rehabilitation there. It would take a superhuman effort, and even then, I'm not sure it's possible. Wow, and you saw that personally. That yes. Dynamic. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. Mm-hmm. It's uh, maybe it's not always possible, but it's a good um, ideal, and 
it's probably more possible than we realize for more people, but I'm sure there are some people that it's not possible for. Yes. I mean, I have seen that up close. So, but yeah. it's true that we've swung way too far to the punishment end of things. And I think it's just making things worse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so now you're, you've left. So when, when did you leave the island in Thailand? I'm going back to your life journey here. <laughs> Um, well, after everything started blowing up, my visa had also expired. And so I left um, last summer. Um, but I'm not, you know, I have my life on the island outside of the school and I love it there. And I have friends and connections that are meaningful to me. So I, I went back for a few months this winter, you know, just wow. to be there. How How is that? Um, it was very it was really healing and beautiful. You know, it was like this strange energy of everyone being in the school together was gone. And I was just there on my own terms. And it showed me how much uh, the place had affected me, even though I thought that I was able to sort of skate around it. It, it, it did affect me. Yeah. Part of your life. And... Mm-hmm. So is the school still going on? It seems to be limping along. They've denied everything and uh, released really horrible statements. Yeah, denying everything and just continuing the same business as usual. So that's why, you know, I don't want to give it a name or attention or, I mean, it's just, it's not safe. Yeah. So they're not taking the restorative justice approach at all, which is what you were saying about the leader. They're not admitting any wrongdoing or anything. No. Nothing. Yeah. Inability to, they just doubled down and re-entrenched on, we've never done anything wrong ever. Ugh. We were sent by God to do this. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a contrasting case, uh, in the case of Shambhala, there's still potential and hope that there will be a process around it and, and healing that will happen. So. Wow. That's really a testament to that organization. Then I'm super happy to hear that. Yeah. So far as I know, I mean, they're, it's an ongoing thing, but um, they're really trying to address it and be upfront and have circles where people like just share and they listen and, and do things like that and have more transparency. Incredible. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an organization where most of the people involved are, have really good intentions and good ethics. So, so we'll see. Well, I hope it works out. Yeah, I hope so too. It would be, it'd be amazing if that became an example of a healing process that was legitimate and allowed people to move forward in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could actually be applied to other situations where the leaders were able to actually accept responsibility and apologize and, and do some inner work to change. Yeah. And so now you're in the Bay Area, is that right? Yes, I am. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you know, I've been one foot here the whole time. I mean, I've been living here since 2003. Um, So I never completely left here. And so it's my home. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I focus on my coaching business, um, which I work online. So I can work with clients anywhere in the world. And it's really amazing what you can accomplish in a Zoom session. (laughs) Oh, that's cool to hear that. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of ways to connect now and, and meet people all over the world. 
Mm-hmm. Do you do you work with um, couples as well? I do. Yeah, I also work with couples. Mm-hmm. And so it's really fun. I mostly work, I mean, I can do all sorts of deep healing and communication and emotional work with couples, but they can also come to me to learn like sacred sexuality. And I can guide them through a process uh, mm-hmm. developed, you know, by my teacher, Layla Martin. And then I have my own influence in it from my own experiences um, that I lead them through. Uh, and it's some of the most fun work that I do, uh, because in order to, to do that sort of work, you need to be in a good place in your relationship. You need to have a healthy stability together, uh, and be willing to be uncomfortable together. Um, Uh, so when couples, yes, (laughs) so when couples have that level of, of connection and stability and they both have the desire and the time to dedicate to learning, you know, sacred sexuality, it's a very, very precious moment in a life and such a delight to, to mm. lead someone through that. That's cool to hear about. Yeah. I can feel your enthusiasm. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> what, do you want to give us an example if you had a couple that was in a good place and that wanted to expand their sexuality or experience sacred sexuality? How would you start? Like, what would be a kind of starting point? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. So, the first thing I do is I lay the groundwork for them to really view their body in a different way and to get connected to their body in a different way. So we might do breath work, um, like a version of holotropic breath work, um, which is really, really enlivening, enlivening. And it also kind of quiets down the discursive mind a little bit so you can open to something deeper. Mm. It's a really, really helpful tool. Or different kinds of, you know, these more expanded tantric meditations where you're like really expanding into your whole sensory ability, your whole energy body. Um, and then we would start to do um, practices to open up different centers in the body. So, you know, in, in tantric practice, the body is sacred. The body is, is divinized. And so we start by bringing breath awareness um, to different parts of the body to start to have a deeper relationship with yourself that way. And then I would give them individual self-pleasure practices to work on first. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> so, uh, yeah, for homework. Exactly. I know it's the best homework. <laughs> and, you know, there's, uh, I'm looking for it right now, but there's eight keys that I work with really toward, you know, developing a sacred sex practice. Um, and I could just tell you what they are. Um, here they are. So the first one is breath work. And then there's consecration, intention, focus, sound and movement, working with energy together, awareness of consciousness during sex, and ritual space. Mm. So basically through the whole series of practices, we go through and make all of those things second nature. Mm. Yeah. Cool. Do you, can you read that one more time? Yeah, sure. So the eight keys to sacred sex are breath work, consecration, intention, focus, sound and movement, working with energy together, awareness of consciousness during sex, and ritual space. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. Well, that's helpful. It gives people something to play with or think about. Right. And it may, it sounds very simple, but each one of them sort of you know, chicken foots and expands into this whole world of, of newness. And 
you know, people say, tell me, like, they say, I didn't know it was possible for my body to feel this way. They say, I thought that was just some weird woo stuff that someone made up. I had no idea that this could happen to me. Mm. And, and also they say, like, I've never formed an intention before making love. That was a totally new experience for me. Or I've never practiced with delaying orgasm. That was a totally different way to relate to my body and my energy and my pleasure. Right. So it immediately just opens these big light bulb doors for people. That's so cool to hear about. Yeah. And it's, it sounds like something you could do at any age. You could start. Oh, absolutely. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I have clients, you know, who are in their 40s or 50s and then clients who are younger. So, yeah, definitely yeah. at any age. Uh, maybe one final question for you while I have you. This idea of um, having sex and not and having the man not ejaculate is like a big thing in Eastern spirituality and Tantra. And you alluded to that a little bit. Like, I'm just curious, like what your take on that is, is it something, is there a certain amount of time or is there like, how do you, is it just like, it seems like what I've heard in some tantric traditions is like, they should just never ejaculate. And I don't know if that's really a helpful (laughs) thing for people to hear or if that, even if someone did that, if that would be a good thing to actually do or not. Do you have any thoughts thoughts on that? (laughs) Those are super great questions. Oh, I could talk about this for ages. Um, <laughs> so again, it's a question of discernment and, and balance and this breathing that I, that I keep referring to, right? This pulsating out and in. So like there might be a time in your life where it's, it's a good period to say, I'm going to practice not ejaculating and see what comes, you know? And then there's going to be other periods where it's like, no, my body wants this. This feels like healthy for me. Um, I'm going to do it. And so really to be centered in yourself, use your discernment. And if you're, if you're just always have this habitual unthinking ejaculation all the time, maybe antidote that for a while and try not doing that. Mm. But then if you get really stiff and contracted and, and, and in a performing mode about not ejaculating, mm. then antidote that tendency and let yourself relax for a while. <laughs> right? I like that. Uh, have some balance. Yes. So, but the thing is that this practice was the thing that, that catalyzed my sexual awakening. Mm. Like it was so important to me because I had had it so ingrained in me from day one that sex was about pleasing the man at any cost. Uh. And I was not connected to my pleasure. I was nervous. I was trying to go fast. It was all about performance and the end goal. But when I started making love with a man who practiced non-ejaculation, all of a sudden, all my stories didn't work anymore because sex wasn't about that end goal of making him ejaculate. It was like, he was there for me for my pleasure. And he was like, we're going to do this as long as it takes for you to get connected to your pleasure, to your deeper awakening here. Mm. And I, at first it was super confronting because I was like, uh, I don't feel worthy of that or sexy enough for that. Right. So it took some, deep work to get me to finally relax and open. But then, and this is another thing we don't get taught is that something happens to my body after, you know, let's say an hour of lovemaking, then you can take a break and then keep going. But after two hours, something else happens and it's like something else releases, something else deepens. And I I could have gone my entire life without discovering how profound that is right? If I had just been focused on this like pornographic end goal, that's all that we're ever taught. And so that was the biggest gift 
that a man ever gave to me. Um, it was like to really feel that he was there for me and not for him. And he, you know, he could wait as long as I needed. Mm. And even he wanted to, he was committed to, like, it wasn't a sacrifice for him. He got more pleasure out of moving the energy in his body this way and from helping me deepen than he did from just that short spurt of ejaculation. Uh, Yeah, Um, that makes sense. And so when you make love this way, also in a couple, it's like such deep, so deeply intimate in a way that we rarely experience. And that also can bond you on a whole other level. And you can start to see the the spiritual benefits of these practices. Hmm. That's cool to hear about. (laughs) Thanks for asking. (laughs) Sounds like I've got some homework to do. (laughs) 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 Well, listen, it's been great having you on. Um, Do you have a website you want to mention or anything you want to mention? Yes, I do. I have a website. It's called thenextlevellove.com. So totally head on over there. Um, But I do post a lot of content on my Facebook page, which is Ananya Harvey. So you can find me on Facebook. And I'm running a men's group, a secret men's group called Deep Masculinity, Sex, Power, and Freedom for the Modern Man. Uh, It's it's virtual online. So if someone wants to join, they can write me a message. (laughs) Cool. That sounds exciting. Yeah, thanks. Well, it's been so great talking to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to support this show, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash a state of mind. If you would like to learn more about my work as a meditation teacher, therapist, and coach, please visit julianocean.us. Our podcast website is a stateofmindplay.com. Thanks so much. Have a wonderful day.